Our speaker tonight is Peter Avis, who came here from Gary, Indiana. Yes, I, I got a, what, a text around five o'clock that you were leaving, and then just as I arrived here, 20 minutes late, that's my phone, uh, you got here about 6.50, which is not too bad, considering the time of day. Good traffic. Very good traffic. And you've been, you were a postdoctoral student with uh, Greg Mueller. Yep, yep, with Greg and, and Pat, and Pat going back, um, we knew each other even before I got to work with Greg. Right, so the, the he I am... He huh? did his graduate work at the University of Minnesota. Oh, well that's... Studying um, a text of nitrogen on fungi, and Greg wanted the same project here, so he hired Pete for a nitrogen project. And that led to this discovery. Oh, excellent. And and now you're at Purdue. And, oh, no. No, is it not Purdue? <laughs> Indiana University. Well, isn't Indiana University kind of Purdue? Oh, never mind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think that's my cue to start talking, right? Okay, you're right. What, 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 in my contract, it says I can't say that word. Uh, we say per don't. If we can't say per don't, we just say P-U, because it's kind of stupid. Well, uh, thank, you, thank you for having me uh, come and, and share some of my work. Uh, uh, I, I, I've been working on, uh, I didn't realize this over the last really 20 years, and um, it's, you know, time flies. I was in the back of the museum here, and I looked around, and I'm like, I saw this stuff doing in a museum. I, I played with this stuff growing up, and then I realized, oh my gosh. I'm in, yeah, all right, I'm in a museum now. So, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you uh, my interest uh, and work on this group of Rushlas that I refer to as the Fetid Rushlas. And I kind of want to highlight um, what we know about them in North America, uh, really what we know and what we don't know. And uh, <clears throat> give you a little bit of overview, a little bit of background, uh, and then talk a little bit as to why this group is so interesting to me. And maybe make it more interesting to everyone else because I think sometimes this group doesn't get uh, the attention that it deserves. Uh, and then talk a bit about what I've done to study it, uh, and then kind of wrap up with a little bit of the, the what we know and what we don't know uh, type of thing. Um, <clears throat> so the fetid rustlers aren't these these guys. Many of you are probably familiar with rustlers as one of the real charismatic. Uh, you go out in the woods, and you know it's one of the first. Uh, super common uh, uh, mycorrhizal type of uh, a mushroom that you run into, and usually people are like, "Ah, oh, it's great, full of colors, and just you know, fantastic, wonderful types of things to look at." But these are not the fetid rushlas. Uh, these are the ones uh, that I fell in love with again about 20 years ago. Um, not not as colorful, but I think as I've come to study them, much more. Uh, Arguably much more important from an ecological standpoint, uh, and, and certainly it's got some, the group as a whole has a lot of interesting things to uh, to learn. Uh, so uh, fetid rustulas, I, I spell it fetid, F-E-T-I-D, uh, but some people throw an O in there, and uh, you can look it up in the dictionary. It's you know, tomato, tomato type of thing. Uh, these guys tend to have brown caps. Uh, brown, tan, orangey, sometimes gray, sometimes a bit of yellow uh, on their caps. Uh, <clears throat> here's one that's uh, <clears throat> a little bit more, more sort of lighter, lighter in the cap color and whatnot. Uh, usually, almost always, 
uh, kind of a whitish, whitish spike. Some, some little bit of bruising and whatnot. Sometimes a little bit of bruising on, on the gills as well. Uh, and a few other characteristics. Uh, but generally speaking, they, they're kind of eh, they're brown, they're a little bit boring. Uh, and this is one, perhaps, that's a little bit more known to people, Russia Lalora Seraceae. Uh, and, and i got to thank Pat, if you notice down here, uh, the, the collection numbers are PRL, uh, Pat Leacock. Pat and I worked together um, uh, for a good long time at the Field Museum. Pat and I went to the same grad school. We share the same uh, grad school mentor, Dave McLaughlin, at the University, University of Minnesota. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I just want to thank Pat for uh, making me a better mycologist. In fact, I consider myself more of a, a fungal ecologist because I got into this trying to really study questions about the ecology of fungi uh, and less about just knowing uh, sort of the mycology in general. But what's happened over the last 20 years is I've become much more of a mycologist. Uh, still very interested in the ecology of, of fungi, but um, I, I guess I've, I've improved at being a mycologist, thanks in large part to people like Pat uh, and Greg Mueller. Um, anyways, thanks Pat. Uh, so this one, uh, if you know it, uh, smells a lot more pleasant uh, because uh, if, if you get it fresh, it smells like amaretto. It's really, really delicious flavor, uh, de de delicious smell, uh, sweet uh, if you catch it at the right time. But if you, if you wait too long on even that nice one and all the others, they get a little nasty. They don't smell uh, very, very uh, favorable at all. In fact, if you look up fetid in the dictionary, uh, fetid basically means heavy, offensive smell. And so uh, this group as a whole, again, sort of my colloquial common sort of tag to it is the fetid rushalist. Uh, one of the taxonomic groups is the Fetentini, which comes out of Russia, the Fetens, which is one of the ones that basically stinks really bad. Uh, so, uh, generally speaking, this group is a mostly yucky group. People tend to avoid it because it's, well, this is from Mush uh, Michael Quo. Uh, this is how Quo would describe uh, the, these guys. A smell that ranges from sweetly waxy or spermatic to strongly fragrant and reminiscent of maraschino cherries and benzaldehyde. Maraschino cherries, if you're lucky, on just a few of them, but more often something chemically and, and, and nasty. Um, it's, a, it's sort of a, a hard to describe, but fairly unmistakable once you are familiar with it. So for me, the, the smell has burnt into my brain because I didn't find all those great uh, Laura Seraceae uh, restless um, most of the time. I would find these uh, more or less kind of, you know, two, three inch tall ones, and they all smell just horrible. They smell like burnt rubber. Like when you, you know, someone accidentally uh, squeals the tires a lot on a car or, or happens to burn a little rubber. It's that, that kind of smell to it. Um, and, and remind me a little bit towards the end, if I forget to mention, uh, one of the hypotheses uh, about perhaps why these fungi do what they are able to do because of, of, of these smells. And we'll, we'll call it the venting hypothesis. Uh, but please remind me if I forget to mention it a little bit later. So uh, other features of the, of the, of the mushrooms and basidial carps in this group, um, if you taste them, they don't taste pleasant, uh, as the smell might suggest. Uh, generally uh, sort of unpleasing, sometimes pretty acrid and peppery. Sometimes uh, that, that, that sort of taste comes right away. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit slow, and some, some don't have it at all. Uh, Quo, Michael Quo again in, in uh, Mushroom Expert would refer to as waxy, oily, acrid. 
etc. Whatever, etc. That might include, but generally speaking, not not a real happy, flavorful thing. And and again, I think because of the smells are a little weird and the taste, no one's messing, no one's collecting these to take home and eat. That's for sure. Um, the cap colors again, kind of brown to versions of yellow and orange, often some with gray tones. They'll they'll wash out with rain as well. Um, spore prints are pretty, pretty, eh, you know, white to cream color. Nothing, nothing super characteristic uh, or exciting there. Uh, <clears throat> taxonomically, if you're sort of thinking about the sort of bigger groupings of, of where people have placed these in general, um, most people refer to these fetid rustlers as belonging to the subsection fetentity in the section ingredia, uh, and that's this kind of older Romagnesi type of system. Uh, more recent. Treatments of Rushula as a whole in the genus, like Bart Bikes got some recent papers. Um, th this group kind of holds up, but it falls into probably some bigger groups. This, this group four on this kind of recent tree, this is from the 2018 analysis. Uh, and uh, it might be referred to as kind of a larger group, just heterophility. Um, and <clears throat> generally speaking, it's one of the more basal lineages of Rushula. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see this kind of slide a little bit later. Uh, but I sort of want to, I like to think of it as maybe a little bit um, one of the more earlier diverging groups of Russialists. Uh, whereas the things that people get really excited about, uh, a lot of the color, more colorful ones uh, are up in the upper, upper glades. Uh, and this is just a, sort of a, another version of the same thing. You can see it a little, little bit more closely. Uh, again, that's sort of what, what uh, some folks are calling the crown rushulas. Again, all the really uh, charismatic, pretty ones. Uh, then the core rushulas. Uh, and then you get down to the basal lineages. And again, we're in this, the group that whoop, I'm, I'm interested in is in, in, this, in this group right here. Uh, <clears throat> now, some of the names that people have used for members of this group include uh, this this uh, laundry list here. Uh, you've probably heard of things like Rushula Minalins, or uh, if you live out west, on the west coast, Rushula Seralins, uh, or there's Fetens and Fragrantissima, Lorceraceae, um, Pectinata, Pectinatoides is probably one of the super common ones, Pulveriolenta, uh, uh, maybe sororia, but that's probably the names that you've seen. But this this list right here includes almost all, all of them that I'm aware of that people have utilized for different well species within this group. Whether or not they've used those properly or improperly, and, and I'll talk a bit about that uh, in in a, in a few moments. Um, so maybe you've got some some of these in, in mind that you've run into uh, in the past. Okay, so why bother with this? pretty stinky, yucky, hard to ID group, because they all kind of look the same. Right? If you go back to that list, I can assure you that if you look at a pectinatoides and an aminolens and a sororia, they're not really easy to identify. There's no good characteristics morphologically that I'm aware of that consistently show uh, a, a good ID. And so this is a tough group. This is a messy group. It's a, it's a, you know, it doesn't have all those great charismatic features on, on the surface. But the reason that I got interested in this group is that I started my, uh, my research uh, looking at fungi below ground. Uh, in particular, looking at the uh, ectomycorrhizal association. So, uh, Rushula is, is, a, is a genus, one of, of many genera, 
that associate with the roots of trees, and you know they set up these fantastic um, sets of fungal tissue around the tree roots, right? The fungi are excellent at extracting nutrients from the soil. They trade those nutrients to the host plants, those trees, in exchange for sugar. So it's that, that fantastic mutualism, that two-way street. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's really occurring here at the root level. So as I started my, uh, my graduate work, I got interested in understanding these kinds of relationships between plants and fungi. Uh, and so uh, one of the first kind of obvious things was that, that Russians in general, especially in Eastern North America, are, are, are very abundant. Uh, I was in Minnesota, uh, and, and there uh, a lot of the habitats are similar to what we have around here, uh, and so uh, we, we, we would see these very, very consistently. Uh, and uh, the, the ecological attributes are really what drew me to this group. So uh, not only were they pretty common in Minnesota, but you're probably familiar with them as, as fairly abundant here in, in Illinois and in the Midwest in general, but if you look around the world, um, this group, not just Russulus, but the, the fed Russulus, uh, are often uh, what I refer to as dominant. Uh, in other words, numerically abundant. And this started to come out in some of the first below-ground studies that used molecular tools. So going into the soil, not just counting the mushrooms, but actually trying to understand how many fungi are on the roots of trees and who are they. Some of the very early uh, uh, DNA-based studies on the, on the, uh, uh, the below-ground fungal community started to identify that this group of fetid rushless uh, was, was pretty dominant in some temperate boreal trop tropical ecosystems. Uh, and the tropical ones a little bit more, more recently as we studied them, but certainly early on. It was it, perhaps a little bit surprising that uh, this group was, was super common. Another neat thing was that uh, a lot of times when you look at the, the, the mycorrhizal associates of, uh, of these, these non-photosynthetic plants, so uh, plants like Indian pike, monotropa, uh, they're, uh, they're a really neat group of plants because they don't have any capacity to do photosynthesis and instead they rely on fungi, in particular many of these, these kinds of rushulas, to tap into the trees in the area that they grow in. The trees basically are giving the sugars uh, to the fungi and for, for reasons that are really intriguing, the, that plant, the monotropus, can basically steal that from the fungi. And so these, these rushulas often are abundant in, in, on the roots of these mycoheterotrophic plants. But then the, kind of the biggest one is this one here, that these, these fetid rushulas tend to persist in uh, environments that are very high in nitrogen. Now I need to kind of sort of step aside a little bit and talk a little bit about this, this, this problem. Um, so nitrogen, uh, as a pollutant is, um, as, as, as people have started to realize that things like combusting fossil fuels or using various forms of, of fertilizers, um, uh, in fact using things like legume as, as cover crops, all introduce forms of nitrogen into the environment uh, that are actually pretty, pretty movable. So sometimes people hear about like the, the uh, uh, the dead zones in the Gulf of, of Mexico that is linked to uh, the, the basically the, the fertilizers that are used on farm fields up in the Middle West, in, in the Midwest, right? So the, those fertilizers basically drain off into the into the Mississippi, they get down to the Gulf of Mexico, trigger this growth, and then that basically kills off um, or uses up a lot of the oxygen down down there. 
there's a, there's a whole other amount of those fertilizers, often applied in sort of liquid form, that about half of it gets into the crop, the other half gets up into the atmosphere and falls out downwind. And so that's essentially you've got, you know, the, 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 the um, increase of, of uh, a pretty potent nutrient. When you think about when you fertilize your grass, right, your grass turns green. Well, now, if you've got a whole lot of uh, volatilized, in other words, sort of vaporized fertilizer up in your precipitation uh, and it moves downwind, then you've got this, this sort of nitrogen pollution problem. So agriculture is related to, uh, to this problem. Um, wherever you have heavy amounts of industry, uh, so places like where I, I, I'm at, Gary, Indiana, steel mills, for instance, uh, produce combust a lot of fossil fuels. A portion of those combustions are forms of nitrogen that are contributing to this problem. And then, of course, anytime you're downwind of, of how many people live in Chicago? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and then you and uh, I think 10 million other people, right? The, the metropolitan Chicago region is right? about 10 million people, right? And many of those 10 million have cars, right? So you have the car, the combustion comes out of the tailpipe. So you've got these various, you know, a lot of, of basically um, forms of, of usable nitrogen getting into the atmosphere through the, the combustion of, of basically uh, fossil fuels. So that combination um, starts to dump a lot of this, this usable nitrogen into uh, ecosystems. And uh, think a little bit about these relationships between trees and the mycorrhizal fungi. Right? It's, a, it's a mutualism. There's a two-way, basically two-way street. The fungus is giving the plant various nutrients, including things like nitrogen, in exchange for sugars. So there's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a typical trade. Now, in these places where there's a lot of nitrogen coming in from the environment, basically through the rainfall, that nitrogen is basically free to the plants. So the, the plants themselves don't need to pay the fungus anymore. So when the, the, the sort of the, the theoreticians look at this problem, they say, well, plants probably just shut off the, the association, and that should be bad for mycorrhizal fungi, right? Because they the, the fungi are basically the ones sort of naturally giving the plants these nutrients, but if the plants get it for free, there's no reason for the plant to pay the fungus anything, right? <laughs> so that's the, that's the theory behind it. When we went, uh, not only me, but sort of lots of other researchers, went into these places where there were high levels of nitrogen, either added through uh, pollution or experimentally, and I worked in experimental sites, where those elevated amounts of nitrogen existed, you saw much, much less diversity of mycorrhizal fungi, just like the theory predicted. It said that the, you know, that trade should stop because the plants are getting it for free. The plants are getting bigger, but the fungi, most of the fungi are dying out. So, <clears throat> there's one major exception. And guess what group is the exception to the rule? It's this group of the fetid, fetid rushes. There's a few other groups, but my, my attention got caught by basically a result like this. So this is the experiment that I worked on during my, my dissertation work. Uh, and basically the, the, what, what happened in this experiment, it was set up in 1985. Some, some uh, ecologists who were super forward thinking set up some fertilization experiments in, a, uh, in, in, in Minnesota in an oak savanna. They started to fertilize them pretty regularly. They had control plots that didn't receive any fertilizers. 
uh, and then they added two different levels of, of nitrogen. Um, and then this one right here, this is like a super high level of, of uh, nitrogen. Probably, you know, 10 to 20 times more than what would come in even in some of the more heavily polluted areas. So they were trying to sort of really press the issue. Uh, if I look at all of the fungi, all of that mycorrhizal fungi, I saw significantly lower numbers of fungi in these high nitrogen uh, treatments. But when I looked at the fetid rushula, so in this case I call this whole group right here rushula affinity aminoids, and this is already tipping you off. At this point, I didn't know what to call these things. I just knew they were in this group, and we'll come back to amenolins as a name a little bit later. But basically, these guys over a three-year period shot up to levels that were unheard of. So they were really taken off, and that bucked the whole expectation and, and the, the, the sort of the, uh, uh, the, the possible explanations. There was a long list of reasons why were these particular mycorrhizal fungi doing something that all the other ones weren't. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But that's sort of the reason that started to get me interested in this, this, this group. Uh, as Pat mentioned before, after I finished my dissertation work in Minnesota, I worked here in Chicago uh, with Greg Mueller. And uh, Pat and John Lusson Hobbs set up an experiment in 2003 where they set up some fertilizer fertilizer plots and control plots in uh, the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, now National Park, uh, 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 Swallow Cliffs here in uh, uh, sort of in the City Forest Preserve, uh, and then another site that uh, we had to leave out of the study because it was uh, sort of uh, a, bad, a bad site. But we started to see the same trend for these fetid rushlas in general, where uh, if you look at the overall amount of nitrogen deposition, you get more in Indiana than you do in Illinois, uh, and where we added nitrogen, we started to see more of these guys. So this real kind of interesting, strong parallel to what I saw in, um, in my work from Minnesota. Uh, and this, this just follows up that that was above ground. We, we were looking below ground, and we saw a similar kind of pattern. So this was kind of the, the, the name that we had slapped onto this, this particular one uh, right here. And it was, it was doing the same thing. It was, it was pretty abundant. Plus, it was, it was showing some positive responses to this, to this nitrogen pollution. So that brought me to the point of, all right, we're, we're seeing this interesting response. It's really different than all the other fungi. But who are they? And, and we talked to some of the, the people who knew something about Russellas, and they said, well, well, we'll, we'll start working on that in a little bit. Uh, but right now, we're going to look at all these other Russellas right now. And so uh, in my dissertation study, you know, you key them out. You know, we get to something that says, oh, it's maybe amenolins. But you know what? Amenolins was defined in Europe. Uh, and then a couple other things kind of like, eh, I'm not quite sure who, who it was. And the experts that we, we, we contacted uh, we're always a, a little bit uncertain about what they were. And so that just kind of raised the question of, well, maybe I should start to look at this myself and start to really dig into the, to, to who, these, who these fetid wrestlers are. So since about 2002, when I finished my dissertation work, I just started to kind of slowly collect when I could uh, anything that looked like a fetid wrestler. And I just, you know, many of you probably have your own collections and whatnot, same kind of way. When you have an opportunity, you go out, you find it, you, you, you preserve it, take some notes, and maybe you start talking to some other people, say, yeah, I'm kind of interested in this group, and you keep doing it, you keep doing it. 
Uh, and next thing you know, uh, you know, I've got a lot of collections from Indiana and Illinois. And I, I grew up in Michigan, so I go back to see my family there. Uh, so a good bit in the Midwest here, but then started to sort of look out, expand to the East Coast a little bit. Colleagues in, in on the West Coast. Uh, took some, I took some trips to uh, Southeast Asia, so this is actually a, a, a collection that I made in Malaysia. Um, a couple of the Mycological Society of America meetings uh, in Alaska, uh, and then a few other places. And, and even recently, uh, I was at a meeting uh, and talking about the same group, and a guy comes up to me and he says, Oh, hey, I got these, collected them in the Dominican Republic. Here, take them. <laughs> so, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, that's basically what I started to do. Ten years after that, I said, I better start putting this stuff together. I, 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 need, to, I need to sort of see where I'm at. And so I took what I had, uh, uh, my, my bread and butter type of work is not morphological analysis. It's, it's DNA based. So I took a lot of my collections, pulled out the DNA, did the DNA sequencing, and started to run the phylogenetic trees. Uh, <clears throat> Fortunately, at this time, uh, a lot of other people had been contributing uh, sequences into, into the global databases like GenBank, so I could tap into those. And started to build the trees. And, and so I, I wrote a paper in 2012 uh, in, in Michael that highlighted a couple of, couple of, I think, key kind of things that, that sort of stood out. One is that there's some really interesting global patterns in this group that parallel some of the patterns in, in other groups. Uh, basically, each of the little triangles here, every single little triangle that you see here is a little clade or a little line, and they're all from a different part of the world. They don't intermix, so you don't get European collections mixed up with American collections. You don't get, uh, 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 let's say, Japanese mixed up with, with uh, European and, and so forth. So the, the geography, sort of that global pattern is really, really pretty strong. Plus, there were a bunch of things in here that I couldn't, there weren't any, there weren't any names. There's a lot of cryptic species in here. So a lot of, well, as we would expect, right, if we know only about 10% of the fungi in general, any group that we're going to start to look at, there's going to be a lot of new species. So this, this started to, to show up as well. And then, of course, where I would look at where people have used the different names, so I'll just pick on one, Rushula pectinatoides, I would find that in lots of these different clades. Uh, and I was guilty of it just as much as other people. Uh, it, it, it turned out that the, the, the application of these names just tended to be really wrong. There were a few that were pretty good. Uh, I will say Rushula pulveriulenta, uh, which you may know is, is this, again, one of these um, Little guys, it's got kind of a neat little yellow, kind of chartreuse yellow stipe, some neat little little surface features to it. That thing held together super well. And there are a couple of these species names that tended, you could use morphology to get to it, um, but most of these were, it was it was hit or miss. And you knew you were in the kind of the ballpark, you knew you had a fetid rushula, but what species, ah, it was it was kind of a mess. Uh, <clears throat> And I would say of those, of those stories, the main thing that emerged from uh, uh, that particular uh, paper for me was that this, this story of biogeography, these global patterns, was really starting to become interesting. Because I could look at this little ITS gene, and it was super predictive of where that fungus came from. It would tell me what continent, and oftentimes what part of the continent it was from. 
So when I, when I, when I, let's look at North America, for instance. If I, if I sequence something um, uh, from North America, I could, I could see right away if it was from the east side of North America, in other words, east of the Rocky Mountains, or if it was from the west coast. And I could do that with, I could do it with a really line. It would fall right into these plates. Same thing, the European clades all clustered together, the Asian clades clustered together. Every time I had a massive sort of uh, geographic continental sort of location, that group held together. And, and that's what this image is trying to sort of relay. It's each of these different colored blocks here. It's basically either a different continent or a different major geographic region within, within a continent. And so that started to really push me to sort of think more about uh, biogeography and fungi, and in, in particular ectomycorrhizal fungi. And uh, there's a really great paper by Kabir Pei and, and uh, uh, Brandon Methane. Uh, and if, if, if you want, uh, I can share this, this, this chapter. It's in a book called Mycorrhizal Symbiosis. Uh, and, and some of the take-home messages are for, um, from this paper, and that parallel what I was seeing, is that for a lot of genera, uh, like Russia, as well as things like boletes, many of the boletes, uh, and anosomy, biogeographical patterns are driven by basically root to root, or what you might think is mycelial to mycelial kind of connections, and the migrations and spread of mycelia. And it's not by spores. The spores, I don't know what Russia spores are good for. Right? Russia would make a fantastic mushroom. But when we try to go and, and culture Russell spores, if we try to use those spores to sort of uh, uh, you know, synthesize mycorrhizal uh, uh, seedlings, they don't work. Uh, what does work, though, is if you take a, a one section of, of root that is fully colonized by Russia, and you, and you take that and you put it onto a root that's not colonized, you can get that colonization, you can get that mycelium to move. Uh, and so the, the uh, sort of the spread of these fungi is, is I think, really interesting and, and has to parallel where the host trees are moving. Most of these red versus are, 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 are following tree hosts. Uh, and then the other major kind of take home from this is that the geographic features, so continents and mountain ranges, are really these key dispersal barriers. Uh, and that the taxa are speciating within those, sort of within those boundaries. So, for instance, um, in, uh, in North America, Russia, what, what, back in the early 2000s, people were referred to as Russia amenolins, was found in eastern North America and on the west coast. So, guys who did studies at the University of California, Berkeley, were saying, oh, we got all of this Russia amenolins. Uh, and then there were people, including myself, uh, east of the Rocky Mountains, saying we had Russia amenolins. Uh, we were kind of both wrong, and we were all using a European name, and it turns out Russian amenolins is a European, there's a real Russian amenolins, even though the type specimen got blown up in World War II, I think. And at that time, people thought, well, it looks the same, so we'll just call it the same thing. Um, basically, that the mountain range between the East Coast and the West Coast, there's no one making, none of these funds are making it over there. Uh, the trees are not migrating across the Rocky Mountain 
you know, that continental divide is just something that is basically not not possible. Uh, and spores, even though the spores might get up and move around, they're, 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 they're not able to find uh, a place to, to do what they need to do. So that was a really neat kind of take home message and, and something that I felt I learned from the, that process. But another neat thing was, well, we wanted to, we know there's some, some of these species like Russellopectinatoides that ought, we ought to be able to figure it out, right? We got all this DNA, we can go find the, the type, you know, the, the person who made that species the first time, and then let's just sequence that, that, that specimen, and then we'll, we'll put it in our tree, and then we'll get the name, right? And we'll have it, we'll have it all figured out. Well, I thought this would be, this would be really easy. I picked Russellopectinatoides, because again, that was, that was one that was pretty common in a lot of the studies. Uh, and it turns out, Russellopectinatoides was identified by Charles Pack in 1906. And this is the top of the type collection. See, it says type right here. Uh, this is the top of the box uh, that the type collection was in. Uh, and it turns out that this is in the New York State Herbarium, uh, which is in Albany, New York. And my brother lives about an hour away from there, so I want to go see my brother. And I can see my brother, plus I can do a little work, right? Because you guys do the same thing, right? You go see family and you're, you're sick and tired of sitting inside, so you go outside and look for mushrooms, right? <laughs> same, thing, same thing happened with me, except I went to the museum. And I said, well, I, I'm just going to go and I'm going to look in this one box. I'm going to, uh, you know, get the, get the permit to sample a little bit of it, take a little bit of DNA out, and I'll, I'll get the answer. So I go to this, I go to this, this museum. There is a collection uh, manager there whose name is, guess what? Okay. No, hey. Lorinda. Oh. <laughs> a third one. <laughs> so super, super helpful. <laughs> and she, she, so she takes me, she takes me to the collections. And she said, yeah, here you go, but you know, I gotta warn you, it's, I, you know, I've been here, what, 20 years, and this thing has kind of been, you know, well, you know, Peck's got a lot of these types, and some of them aren't in the best shape. And, and this, this, is, this is one that wasn't in great shape. So I opened up the box, and this is what was inside. This is what's inside the type collection of Russellopectinatoid. It's about 20 different mushrooms. Um, some, whoops, some that had in the 1970s been looked at by Schaefer, who was at the University of Michigan, he had come through and looked at some of these and realized that, uh-oh, this is probably, this is a mixed collection, and he pulled one out for sure, and he pulled out the Russia Labora Ceraceae, because that was kind of the easier one to ID. And he said, this one doesn't belong here. I can't speak for the rest of them. But he literally pulled that out and set it aside. And so that had already kind of um, made some made an impression on me. And I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not a, a curator. And, and I don't know for you know folks who work in museums a lot, uh, and, and maybe Pat can mention, is this good, uh, is this, a, is this, this isn't a proper way to, to maintain a type type collection. A type collection should be what? Should it be one specimen, right? Well, there's no, there's no official direction on what a type should be. Okay. But there are multiple 
types that have multiple things in them like this. So this is one of those, it, but this is a problem if you approach it like I did, thinking I'm just going to grab some DNA and we'll solve the problem, right? Because we'll just look at it and we'll, we'll, we'll get it all figured out. Well, which one of these do I pick? Which one do I pull out and say this is the one? So I sat there and I, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I, I said, well, most of these kind of look the same. But again, I came into this knowing that these are hard to ID. And you know, who knows if Peck was just getting these from a lot of people and realizing, I don't know what it is. I'm just going to throw it in this box and call it Russell Peck and the Toys. So this led to. Uh, this paper right here. Now, what happened was, is my first visit to the museum, I was able to sample three of those, three of the these guys in the box. In fact, I pulled them out and I separated them and I put them in each in an individual little tissue uh, within this collection. And, and Lorindo was able to help kind of compartmentalize it. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just sequence three of these. If they're all the same, then all right, great, that's, that's the answer. So I go back to my lab and start working on it. I have a, a student um, who's helping me. Uh, and pretty soon we realized working with ancient specimens, right, 1906, and this is in, you know, over 100 years later, working with 100-year-old with, uh, specimens, the DNA isn't of great quality. What happens in these older specimens is uh, over time, the, the, you know, the, even though the cells are still there, the chromosomes and the DNA that's in there, they start to break down into smaller and smaller pieces. So when we usually go after DNA, it's relatively fresh, you know, maybe within a few days of, of you know, collection or maybe even in a couple of years or something like that, those chromosomes are pretty much intact and they're kind of long. Well, you wait 100 years, these things start to break down in really small chunks. And so we were running into some problems trying to actually do the DNA sequencing, uh, in part because of that. Well, I got a kind of strange email from Lorinda at the New York State Museum and said, hey, there's, there's this, this, this European group who wants to do the same thing that you're doing, but because you were here first, you get priority and you can choose whether or not you want to share some of that collection that you got with them. And so I thought, geez, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty busy, right? I got, I got three kids, share the department. I got, I got a lot of teaching I got to do. I got all kinds of other things going on. I'm thinking, oh, great, someone else wants to work on this, right? It makes, makes my life a little easier, so I think. So uh, it's really kind of a long story, but when um, the the person reached out to me, Lorinda, at the, at the museum, kind of suggested maybe I didn't want to do this. And I, didn't, I couldn't quite read between the lines well enough, because uh, I think she realized maybe that this group from, uh, they were mostly from Switzerland, had, um, I, I, I guess maybe the challenges in, 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 in language. And so, long story short, I, <laughs> would get these emails from the leader of the group that I would, it would take me about an hour to kind of figure out what they were trying to say. Their English wasn't all that good. And I just couldn't really figure out what they wanted. But I wanted to help doing this. And I, and I learned a little bit from them that they had done this kind of, some of this ancient DNA work, 
but most of the time they were working on things like bacteria. They weren't mycologists, uh, the initial group that contacted me. Uh, the lead author on this, Sasha Malera, is uh, a European mycologist, but they were working in collaboration with some of these other, uh, basically, bacteriologists from, uh, from Europe. So it was, it was a little hard for me to kind of understand what we were doing. I did end up sending them a little bit of, 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 I think, two of the collections that I had gotten from the New York uh, Museum. But I only had a little bit anyway, so I kind of subdivided a little tiny bit, even smaller. They got them, they worked on them, and uh, one of them they couldn't get to work. The other one they did uh, with their techniques, and, and they were able to get a sequence of it. But again, that was just one of, I knew it was a whole bunch. They were really anxious to try to get some stuff published, and I was, I couldn't understand really what they were trying to do. I had a little hard time sort of with, with some of the, their, their approaches and whatnot. So after about a year, I just said, I got too many other things to do. I just forgot about it. Forgot all about it until about six months after I forgot about them, I get an email from this journal, Mycological Progress, and it's the editor. He says, would you like to review this paper? And I, I look at it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I know these people. <laughs> he said the Europeans, and they got my stuff in it. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, Without your name? No, my name wasn't in there yet, but you see it is now. <laughs> so um, I sat down because it, I, I, I was like, well, I should really look at this. And you know, I didn't mind helping them. But at the same time, as I read through it, I realized their English had not improved. <laughs> and I don't mind trying to help a manuscript get to life if I can help with the language on it. Plus, some of their findings were were things that I had direct connection to. And so I turned on and I, I, I spoke to the editor and I, and I told him, I said, look, I, and I don't know if they had communicated this to the editor or not, but um, I told him, I said, look, these collections I've got a direct connection to, long story short, I'll help out uh, if they're willing to include me as one of the authors. So that got me back together with them. And eventually what we did is we got this paper together. So it's a really long story. and. I'm still, I've never met these people, so I don't know, I mean, we've only emailed back and forth, but you know, science is kind of an interesting business. What happened in that paper was they, uh, this thing right here, they named Rushula Recondita, that is what Europeans called in Europe, whoops, sorry, um, that is what the Europeans called Rushula pectinatoides. Because Peck named pectinatoides on American specimens, that's an American, basically an American name. Uh, they were Europeans were misusing it, and so in this paper they were able to highlight that that should be used. This whole group up here is uh, this new, what they call the new species, Raycondita. Uh, and then you can start to kind of look through here. Here's a, 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 an American version of that, and that same rule before. So everything's lining up by geography. And then the one, the one lone. Lone sequence they got from the, 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 the museum stuff that I sent them hung out down in this group that they decided to call pectinatoides. And, and I, I agree with them to call that. We think that's pectinatoides, but we didn't really sample the whole box, right? We kind of need to know more from that box. So that's nice. Uh, again, my life is just kind of a constant blur of, <laughs> of events. Students come and go. 
Uh, and usually what happens is I make some progress when a good student shows up. So uh, introduce you to Joe Jansky. Joe Jansky is now in medical school. I think he's at Marion University down in Indianapolis now. Joe shows up on my doorstep. He took my oncology course and said, hey, I'd like to do some research with you. And so I said, Joe, I got this. I had made another trip to New York herbarium, and I sampled more than three this time. I had, I think, about a dozen of the different mushrooms from the Peck uh, type box. I said, Joe, would you like to, let's, let's figure this out. And so Joe started the process of getting the DNA out. Uh, and this is the cool machine that basically shakes, it's a paint shaker, basically. You put little beads in the sample and it pulverizes it. And then Joe was able to get the DNA out. Uh, through a really sort of detailed process. It's a, it's a much more detailed process when you're trying to get this really pure, good DNA uh, than, than what we might use when we uh, work with really fresh specimens. Uh, <clears throat> so Joe was, was great at that and kind of, again, I, I get uh, inspired by my students who want to do more. So this project, uh, I had two sons born in this window, this window of time and so Joe was making sure research progress was going on. Uh, but I also realized and learned from another one of uh, Pat and my lab, uh, well, we, we all belong to the same lab mentor, this guy Bryn Dentiger, who graduated from the University of Minnesota in Dave McLaughlin's lab as well. Bryn, uh, <clears throat> Bryn is now at the University of Utah. Uh, he's a really phenomenal mycologist. Uh, 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 you may come across some of his stuff at some, some point if you haven't already. Uh, but long story short, Bryn has, uh, Bryn's a master of both sort of the curatorial side and, and being a curator. So he's, he used to be at the Q, uh, the Q Museum in, in London, um, but now he's at, 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 the, at the museum in, in Utah. But he's also a fantastic field mycologist and, and, and biologist in general. And he's got these techniques to basically deal with some of the problems with this, this DNA breaking up with ancient specimens. And I told him about our project, and he said, hey, let's, let's work together and use some of these new techniques. And basically, uh, what we were able to do is to take this, his technique, which is utilizing some of the really, really fancy new DNA sequencing, uh, genome sequencing approaches, which is kind of uh, basically, you know, you, you take a cell of, of, you know, whatever you give the process to and it pulls out all the DNA and it doesn't really matter how big or how small the DNA is because through this kind of, this, this sort of pipeline, I'm not going to go through it all um, by any means, but basically what you can do is you can, you know, if you've got all these little broken pieces of DNA, you can use this approach and stitch it together and if you've got kind of a reference genome to uh, sort of layer it on top of, then you can start to look at these things. And so. We uh, send Joe's DNA extractions, uh, all the little red dots here, the different ones. So each one of these red dots is from one of those different physical specimens from the type box. Uh, really the, the only reason I want to show you this is this column right here shows you for each one of those samples how many sequences you can get out of it. So like that's, a, that's over a million sequences just from one, right? 700,000. So this is it's mind boggling how much information you can get out of this process. Here's the answer that Bryn got with our, our specimens. Um, he was able to do this for, he got pretty good date, uh, results for four different ones uh, and basically four different species from that same box. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, um, okay. 
lots of different, lots of different, lots of different things that went into the, the type box right there. Bryn, Bryn, Bryn has studied enough mycology. His idea is that what happened was Charles Peck would, was probably sitting at his desk and at his lunch break, he was eating his sandwich and then looking at each of the Russians sitting at his desk thinking, oh, all right, someone said this to me. That looks like this one. It's going to go in that box. And that one looks like that one. So he thinks something like that probably happened here. Uh, and, uh, you know, as Pat mentioned, sometimes this happens. And now we're at the, well, what do we call a type? And so uh, what is, is growing out of this, this is, this is a project uh, that's in progress right now, is that this one will become the real Russia lepectin So we'll elevate this to, what do we call this, the lectotype. Is that right, Pat? It's supposed to be on your previous slide, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, but Peck, that whole box, Peck lectotyped that in 1916. Well, now we're going to. Our holotype. Our holotype. Our mess type. <laughs> whatever we want to call it. This one is what we'll set as the standard for Russell Pectinatoides. Uh, and it fits really well. This is from that, that previous paper. Fits in here. And uh, it's pretty consistent. It makes a lot of sense given where the, it was collected in, in Eastern North American one. Yeah. How do you decide which one to use? Because uh, I think in this case, it was the one that was the first one that we got. The other ones matched up to other taxa. So one was Lorosaraceae, fell into that group. Another one fell in closer to stuff like Sororia, and that whole kind of subgroup and whatnot. This one was the one that had the most, made most sense of what people had been calling pectinatoides. Did you look at scores or anything afterwards? For this, yeah, in the malaria paper, that was okay. and it was all that all messed up. But in this, I'll tell you, in this whole group, you'll see some scores in a bit from different species. There's not much difference. Not much difference. Donates. Rest of the pectinatoides. We'll have a real name on it pretty soon. There will be a real one. Um, okay. So that, that's a little bit in progress, but we're, we're getting a handle on who Russell Pectinatoide is. Uh, another great student, Lena Barajas, uh, same kind of thing like Joe Jancy. She shows up on my doorstep and says, hey, let's do some work. So, okay, so at this point, uh, I just, again, wanted to kind of re-sort of summarize where, where we were at. And so Lena was fantastic at, at helping me pull together a lot of the DNA sequences that we had. Um, and uh, also, though, uh, doing a little bit of field work. And so uh, what we were able to do uh, is put together another one of these big trees, but really kind of start to look at where, where things belong, where were they coming from, with, with an attention to North America and trying to really see how things made sense of, for the feds across North America. But sometimes it was good to put that into kind of a global context. Um, this is this is some stuff that we put together for the poster that we presented at the International Mycological Congress in Puerto Rico last year. Uh, and I was like to show the palm trees back there, so we really were in Puerto Rico. Um, sometimes people don't think that. Uh, and so uh, here's here's kind of the take-home message from uh, Lena's project, or the first part of Lena's project, was that. It looks like there's four global clades of the, the fetids or the fetentity, and, and just name them A, B, C, and D. Uh, 
Most of those plates are found on multiple continents. So you can go to a continent and find each of these four. And that kind of suggests that probably they have ancestors that uh, existed back to the kind of Gondwanaglan ancestors. And then they've since then sort of moved into the current, uh, current locations and started to speciate from there. Uh, all of these species are exclusively geographically determined. So we don't get any mixing whatsoever. So you don't get the, the Europeans mixing up with the Asian and the American, so on and so forth. The only time you see that is when there has been a transplant of a fungus from things like Arboretum. So in New Zealand, there is an Arboretum in, I think it's in... Uh, Near, I think it's in the South Island, or it doesn't matter, but it's in New Zealand. And we had one sequence that the Rushula popped up, and it's right in the middle of, the, of a European clade. And we're like, what is going on with this? So we looked at that and reached out to some colleagues in New Zealand, and it turned out they said, oh, that was collected underneath a tree in an arboretum. That tree came from Switzerland. Oh. It was in a, it was a donation to that arboretum as a seedling. So presumably, what happened is that fungus that Russell was on the roots of that seedling in Switzerland when they moved it over there, it just hitchhiked there. Since then, we've seen one or two two other uh, times, and each time it's been a, basically a, a transplant or uh, a hitchhiker, if you will. So that, that kind of this this geographic determination is is pretty strong. Uh, <clears throat> And this, and this fits with this, this whole idea of mycelial spread is more important than the, than the spore dispersal uh, and how, at least, the sort of the, the major patterns of these guys. Um, in North America, we got about 10 species level lineages. I want to include Central America in there. Seven to 10 in Eastern North America, about two in the Western side, and one, uh, at least one, probably a couple more down in sort of that, what I kind of refer to the, as the funnel. Uh, you know, southern Mexico, uh, Panama, um, Costa Rica. Uh, and then if you look at kind of, you know, that, this too all fits with this idea that, uh, you know, the mycelial space movement is what matters because there's a lot more uh, in eastern North America than western North America. If the barrier is, are the Rocky Mountains, uh, there's just more, more territory to move in eastern North America. So Lena wasn't done though. Um, midway through the uh, time together, uh, a group of Europeans, different group of Europeans, these guys I knew were good uh, Russia, Russia uh, mycologists, um, they hosted a workshop uh, in Slovakia, and uh, I was not able to make it, but Lena uh, figured out how to send Lena to this, this workshop. And uh, basically the workshop was uh, an opportunity to try to put together the, the key micromorphological characteristics that uh, seem to matter for Russians and try to get a comprehensive kind of global language for everyone on the same page and what to look for if you're going to look at Russians and, and how, to, how to describe them. And they did this in collaboration then with the DNA work. So there's Lena sitting there looking at the microscope. Uh, and here's a whole bunch of folks from all over the world. Uh, they're in Slovakia. Uh, and that, sort of long story short is spores are okay. Uh, a few of the other elements are okay. But what really matters 
is the pileopelis, so that thin little layer of cells on the surface of the cap. And it's not just anywhere, but it's making sure you pay attention to where on the pileopelis uh, uh, you're looking at. So for instance, um, Slavo uh, Adamchuk uh, is, is, is adamant, adamant that really what, what matters most is if you look in the middle, the center of the cap, and you look at the, the, the basically the cystidial elements and some of the, the hyphal branchings in the middle, and you then compare those to the periphery of the cap, that oftentimes there's some really crucial diagnostic differences between those. However, what you'll see in the next couple ones I'll show you, there isn't a whole lot of difference between the fetids, and that's another reason why these guys stayed away from them, because some of these characters didn't work super well for them. But uh, that's beside the point. Um, this workshop produced a paper that was just accepted last week, uh, and I think it will be a super useful resource for everyone interested because it's going to try to really present here are the characteristics that everybody should be looking at if you're trying to understand Rashulis. Uh, in this paper, uh, we had uh, it was a really massive paper, I think it's like 100 pages in total um, uh, in, in print and whatnot. Uh, it included uh, several of the new taxa, some of those cryptic species. So I'm going to I'm going to introduce uh, you to two of the new species uh, that are found here locally. Uh, and again, basically hot off the presses. Uh, one is uh, this clade, and this other one is right here. And this is part of that that super super Russian tree that you saw before. So the two new taxa, and you guys are the, really the first ones to hear about this because I just got the, got the word on uh, the acceptance of the publication last week. Uh, the first one is going to be called Russia Gariensis, and the second one is going to be called Russia Amera Rekindida. Uh, so here's Russia Gariensis. Uh, it is, uh, again, about like the rest of the Russia. The, the, the one couple of key differences on this one, it's got a little bit more orange a little bit more of that kind of amber color in the cap than many of the other ones. And maybe a little bit more stout, but it just happens to be the ones that we collected to really study happen to be really, really good. I think there are some that are gonna be kind of a little, little, little smaller. Plus some of these, not all of them, some of them have this really pretty uh, bright red staining on, on the base of this. Now, we chose to name that's this species after the city of Gary because of the work that we did at the University of Indiana Universities in Gary. Um, it turns out right now it's that's approximately the center of its known distribution. We've got a collection from Western Minnesota, we've got a collection from West Virginia, and a whole uh, bunch of things in between. So if you think about between West Virginia and Minnesota, that puts you right into Gary, Indiana. Also, uh, if you pay attention to the news, uh, just last week, some bozos from Business Insider uh, had one of these like ridiculous polls, and they, they, they say, what's the most miserable city uh, in, in the country? And well, it turns out Gary, Indiana hit that. I live in Gary, Indiana. I raised my family there. I encourage you all to come and visit. Um, there's, there's all that, yeah, every city's got its problems, but uh, this, kind of, this kind of bad press is, is uh, it's not, it's not helpful, it's not welcome. And I hope something more like this, though, is, is something that make people proud of the city. Uh, and I do, know, I do recognize, though, there's this, it's a sort of coincidence that this group is kind of stinky and smelly, right? I can't get away from the fact that my introduction to the city, Gary, was actually Time to roll up the windows when you're driving to Chicago from Michigan and you hit Gary because of the, yes. the steel. Yes. Right? 
So, anyways, that's besides the point. Um, I, I got to credit Pat as well for uh, you guys named that Chantrell after Chicago. I think in my in deep in my 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 uh, uh, you know subconscious, I was like, dang it, I should really name something after the city of Gary as well. So, <laughs> thanks, thanks to Pat for that as well. Uh, anyway, so Gary Ensis, again, it's got a little bit more amber in the color. It actually doesn't smell as strong as the other ones. Uh, its taste is a little bit more mild. Here's some of the elements uh, under the microscope. Again, the cydia, uh, some of the cystidia in the hymenium, uh, and then those elements in the, the pileopelis. Again, the, when, when, we, when Lena went to the workshop in Slovakia, all the experts there were like, dang, these things stink because it doesn't follow that rule very well. You can see them, you can find them, but they don't have these nice distinguishing features of, from the middle to the outside and that highly pellets. But they're, they, they're still there. The spores, uh, you know, like a good solid uh, amyloid rest of the spore, the, the Gariensis. So these guys right here, these are a bunch of the other uh, species. <coughs> and you can, this kind of helps sort of see the comparison to the other uh, brushless. They have uh, some, you know, some of the little 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 warts on here and some of the little ridges, but they're kind of, uh, gosh, I would say kind of average in terms of the, the excitement of the, the, the Rushula spores. Uh, and here's the other species, Rushula amero racandida. Uh, racandida, if you remember, is a European species that was named in the previous paper. I tried real hard to tell them, hey, we got another species right next door. Uh, the, the Europeans, again, I couldn't get my, my translation to them in a way that they agreed with it. Uh, so we just got a bunch more sequences in this next effort. Um, and this is basically the American Rakendita. And Rakendita basically means uh, it hasn't, uh, it's been looked over. So this is the American version of the looked over one. Uh, <clears throat> And again, probably a lot of the things that people have referred to as uh, in Eastern North America as pectinatoides or uh, as amenolins uh, in, is included here. So this is, if you look at some of the stuff uh, in, in Indiana, some of the stuff that Steve Russell is doing, I think he's already using this, this name pretty, pretty broadly. Uh, and again, here's the same kind of elements under the microscope. Uh, and if you look closely, these don't look very much different than the than the ones in Gariensis, uh, and the spores as well. Pretty similar, super similar. Size-wise, tri trivial differences between them, but their DNA is night and day different, night and day different. Okay, so this is kind of just wrapping up then. So what we know, in addition to the things that, that kind of said so far, is that we know some names now a little bit better. We know we should probably not use any European names in North America and vice versa and elsewhere in the world. So there are certainly there's some really good Asian work going on right now. There's some, some new new names in, in uh, China that I'm familiar with. They've got one called Pseudopectinatoides. It's kind of their pectinatoides. It looks a lot like pectinatoides, but it's definitely not pectinatoides, so they call it Pseudopectinatoides. Um, we know we have a really good idea what the real pectinatoides is. We've got some of these new names. So what do we don't know? Um, well, we still don't know what the spores are good for. Uh, and, and again, all of the evidence that, that we have so far indicates that these fungi are moving by mycelium. And, and they are, they're making spores, but they, there's no indicator that those are really good for dispersal uh, and, and moving around. Maybe they're locally they're doing something, but 
Uh, for right now, it's, it's not clear. Uh, no one's been able to really figure, crack that, crack that kind of uh, knowledge on, on what the spores are good for in brushless. Um, the, the, um, so why is this group and some of its close relatives so good at, at tolerating nitrogen pollution? We don't know that answer. There's a, there's a, there's a laundry list right now. Maybe they're really good at giving plants some other nutrient besides nitrogen. So maybe they're good at giving phosphorus or, or, or something like that. Maybe they turn the tables and maybe they're parasitic or more parasitic. Uh, they're able to, once they get onto a root, they, they, the plant can't kick them out for some reason. Um, and, and maybe it's kind of an apparent thing in, in that people, when they see them, so when, when we go and we count them, what we're seeing is they, they're, they're, they're doing poor, but not as poor as everyone else. And so what that means is if, you, if your competitors are getting hurt even worse than you're being hurt, you're kind of winning. Okay, so it looks like you're winning. So there's, there's another hypothesis. Uh, and then the venting hypothesis. So it turns out that the, those smells, those stinky smells, often have lots of nitrogen-based compounds in them. So one idea is the way they're tolerant of nitrogen, even though they you know, most of these fungi uh, don't like so much nitrogen, is they, they actually are able to sort of incorporate it and then get rid of it, and they're just venting that nitrogen off of, off of their, their structures and whatnot. Uh, and then the last thing, I didn't mention this before, but there's some really neat structures on uh, the, 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 the mycorrhizas on these things called cystidia. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the, the mushrooms, sometimes you run into cystidia in, in, the, in the gills and on the, the cap and whatnot. But it turns out there's a whole bunch of cystidia on the, on the roots themselves. Um, and people have seen these for a good long bit. This is an ectomycorrhizal root right here. And each of these little specks right here, those are little tiny cystidia. Oh, I went too, too far. Um, there's little tiny cystidia. I'm just going to show a picture. You see them a little bit better here. And this is probably the best one to see. Uh, this is a cross-section of a root. And so these guys are basically the interface between the mycorrhizal root and the soil environment. Uh, <clears throat> it turns out that the fetid rushlas all have these cystidia on the roots, but not all rushlas have these. And there's some indication that maybe this is a structure that is helpful in some of those, some of those other traits. Um, a lot of people have talked about cystidia as being protection from, from insects and grazers and whatnot. Uh, some of the other groups, uh, there's some more pictures of the roots here. Uh, the, this guy, uh, Massico, talked about them as being useful for producing oxalates. It turns out oxalates are good in soil for releasing phosphates, so that would fit into some of these other things. Uh, but the last thing I'll just leave you with is the, the picture of the Russia tree, the, one of the more recent Russia trees. If you look at the cystidia that they have on their roots, on the ectomycorrhizal roots, all of the basal ones have the cystidia, but the more derived ones do not. And that's kind of, that's a really intriguing question as to why that would be the case. Probably some really interesting characteristics in what, what they're able to do. So, that's what we know, what we don't know, uh, and I'm going to finish talking. So, thanks for your attention. Yes. So with your venting hypothesis, have you looked at the nitrogen content in the spores? Is the nitrogen content in the spores different? Are they using that as a vehicle for venting? 
uh, we have not. The, the only nitrogen content that, that I know we've measured is we've looked at some of the tissue in general, so some of the mushroom tissue, and we've also scraped off some of the, the, the fungal mantle on the roots. Um, and in the roots, they were a little bit elevated in there. But what we haven't done is we haven't, so apparently uh, the, the, the perfume industry is really good at doing this. You can put like flowers inside of this basically gas chamber, and then you can do like a gas chromatograph, and you can sample the, the, the gases, and then you can look at the, the you know, elemental compounds and the amounts of, of them in there. We haven't done that, but that's, that's something that would be kind of interesting. My second question was, um, you said that the species were conserved within the geographic regions. How many base pairs are you talking here? Is, is it 50% conserved? 60% conserved? No, no, we're talking, usually when um, we use like less than 5%, uh, if there's about 2 to 3%, we start thinking they're different by 2 to 3%, then we start thinking they're different species. Once we get to about 5%, then we're pretty confident. It also matters where, where those differences are. And so that's what those phylogenetic analyses are able to do, is to sort of watch how those different, you know, you might have one section that really hangs together, and it's not kind of a random 5%. It's a very consistent one. And we'll see that same thing. So for instance, the Russia ligariensis, we've got the same little motif from samples that we've gotten from Minnesota, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, and West Virginia. So it's a really consistent picture of where those, those, those differences are in comparison to all the other fetid Russians. Excuse me, I, I assume that there's some kind of nitrogen compounds that are getting inside the, are getting inside them. What kind of, I mean, where, what kind of compounds are getting in there and how is it getting in there? Sure. Before they vent it, so to speak. Yeah, great question. So my understanding is that sort of the usual forms that fungi and plants interact with are things like nitrates and ammonites, mm -hmm. uh, which are relatively small. And in a few cases, they'll take in you know proteins or, and, and amino acids and whatnot. But the majority of the nitrates and, and the ammonites. I got to remember a little bit of how how that all works. But I think that. Um, the the ammonias are a little easier, like energetically, to deal with than the, the nitrates. Uh, and then, you know, what they're able to do with them once they are able to take uh, uptake them, that's I have no no clue what what's going on there. But what I what, what I remember uh, is that there's some it, for some fungi, it, it wasn't studied in, the, in these, these fed rushlets, but for some that they can grow in culture and do this experimentally, if they were presented with the ammonias, they, they were like forced to take it up. Like they mm -hmm. could not take it up. It was just like, it was there. And that kind of makes sense. It's usually a rare you know, compound they interact with in, in nature. And so if given, you want to make sure you, you get it. So all of the, the, the you know, the... Um, you know, some membrane uptake mechanisms and whatnot are geared to making sure if it's there, you're going to get it. But then if that means if it's always on and you've got a whole bunch coming in and you don't have the ability to sort of deal with that, then you've got that, all that excess nitrogen and how do you handle that? Mm -hmm. So, um, but beyond that, not sure, not sure at all. Thank you. Yes, sir. Are you familiar with the Salton Sea out in California? Yeah. Do you find these in that area? Uh, I would I would have to check the 
places that I know for sure some of these have been found are a little, I think, a little further north, uh, definitely around the, you know, the Bay Area and whatnot, um, and then up into the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I'm just thinking because it's a highly polluted and sure. loaded with a lot of pesticides as well as fertilizers. Yeah, yeah, it could be, it could be. I, I, I have to, I have to go, go look and see what people. Are How about around pig farms? Great question. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the initial work that was done on nitrogen pollution in general was done in Europe. And they were looking strictly at mushroom patterns. And they related those to um, uh, agriculture, specifically in the Netherlands. And they had heavy, heavy use of, of fertilizers and uh, I think both uh, synthetic as well as you know, farm, you know, animal produced fertilizers and whatnot and really, really serious uh, decreases in the, the mushroom productions downwind of all of those areas. Uh, a second really important study was done in Alaska uh, by Scanning uh, Lilliskov, and he was able to find this area that was all downwind of a fertilizer factory. Hmm. And it was just this, this perfect plume, and it went for couple of miles I think and so he was able to do this kind of uh, transect study and it was and that that factory had been I think like 20 years before he, he got to it and so it had plenty of time to do that I would imagine if there's a uh, an agricultural facility that's really pumping out a lot of uh, you know a lot of this and especially if it's atmospherically it, you know it would probably even be worth a look Yes. So, my understanding then between the worst ones and uh, the roots of trees and everything that it interacts with is that it's that relationship where the rosalas provide the nitrogen and then the roots provide the sugars. That's right. So, in those highly polluted nitrogen areas where the roots don't have to provide that nitrogen. Is that where there's the confusion on like how the worsens sugar? Yeah. Why? Well, we know when we go in those places. So in that Minnesota study, yeah, it had been ongoing for again. I was it started in '85, and I was looking there in 2000, and 2000, 2001. So 15 years later, and as I'll tell you, we have samples from last year, and that pattern is still there. So it's, it's still ongoing. We know that those rushes are still on the roots because we dug the roots of the oak trees up and they're still there. So how are they hanging on to those roots when the trees should be like, get the, get out of here? Right. So yeah, that's a that's a big question. And, and again, we don't we don't understand why that they're able to do that. There aren't any very few other species that are able to withstand that much nitrogen and, and basically stay in that in that, that kind of environment. So again, it could be Maybe they are providing something else that the plant wants. So rather than having nitrogen as what the fungus is giving, maybe it's giving phosphorus. Okay. Okay. So it's a, just another nutrient that they need, and maybe it becomes even more important. So that's the advantage, and maybe these are the ones that are especially good at doing that. <laughs> we would have to do some experiments to look at that and really get them into um, some kind of symbiotic culture to be able to, to tweak those things and set up an experiment to look at that. Uh, because because these things hang out with those those non-photosynthetic plants, it's kind of weird because they they 
there's this other plant that can kind of trick them, right? And so right. it's just it's a conundrum that we're we're, we're scratching our heads about. So I have a couple of questions. But one is um, related to like monotropa that is associated with Russula. Are, have they narrowed that down to any particular group of Russula? There's so it, there are monotropas that um, uh, I know of that have found that, that have found the fetid Russulas. Uh, in fact, if you there were a couple of slides that included. Um, like uh, a couple of the, the uh, it wasn't amount of trouble, but another one of the non-photosynthetic ones. Uh, there are a couple, there are handfuls of other rustles, and there have been some studies to look at like specificity. Are there certain lineages that these plants are finding? And I think there was a little bit of signal to that, but there's, it's not just the fetids, but there are definitely, rustles in general are one of the super common ones on those, on the monotropes. More questions? So um, I know over the time that we've been, like 20 years in Chicago with these rustles and all the other messy tax that we have to figure out, um, at some point we decided that what we are calling amenolins and what we are calling pectin 20s made a switch. So what is what now? So do both of your new species, are they both? So right now. Are they both yellow? Or and yeah. do they both have some? So right now, right around here, around yeah. here, all that stuff we were dealing with. There's no amelins. Forget amelins. Right. Doesn't exist in North America. Um, Pectinatoides, Amerorecondita are the probably the two ones that we have most abundantly. Okay. And trying to morphologically sort those out. I don't have any good characters to to suggest. I don't think much. They're they're they're. Numbingly similar. Uh, Garyensis, there's going to be some in the Sororia group. Sororia is a European name, but there's some North American versions of that that are in there. Uh, and then probably the like the little bit bigger ones, like the Fetens. Fetens is also a European name, but the American version of that. The Lorosoraceae seems to hold together okay. The Pulverulenta holds together okay. Uh, and so, I think what we were calling pectinatories and amelins has to be revisited um, in, the, in the light of the new... Are there more than one that... Is there anything besides Gariensis that stains the reddish? I think so. I think, I think the... I think, the um, I think there were some collections of the pectinatories that I think... Again, that's where the morphology is just not super helpful for us. And I, I don't trust So what, what, uh, what names should we use for the gray one that doesn't stand? I don't know. Look at the DNA. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Sorry. That's, what, that's, what, that's, my, that's, that's, that's where I feel comfortable making a decision. Because I think that gray comes in on a lot of different... Like I showed you some of those early images. Some of them are, you know, Kind of brownish, almost almost you know darker brown, and it'll be next to one that's, that's pretty light, and some of it's just washing out, some of it's I don't know, natural variation. In it. But I've not I've not seen any any good morphological characteristics that I that I feel reliable. This kind of leads to that ID. Uh, if they're separated geographically, like the one on the West Coast, 
I mean, almost every nursery gets seedlings more than carries that. Yeah. It's all off. Yeah. Great, right great point. Yes. Fantastic. I would. I would think it's important to pay attention to that. And if we started to see some of the West Coast things over here, because again, you could, it'll it'll pop out in those plates really distinctively. Yeah. And if you can trace it back to that, it'll you know that'll, that'll be an indicator. Uh, my understanding is those the one that I mentioned in New Zealand that was pretty old. It was like 20, 30 years old. It was fairly fairly old. It wasn't like a recent transplant. Um, but you know we know we know that there are lots of fungi that are pitched rides, um, and a fair number of these mycorrhizal things. Uh, it's the big amanita, right? Um, <coughs> is it phloides now that's that's you know causing all kinds of trouble, and that's that's similar. It's, how far down into the ground will the fungus grow? So most of the time, we sample the roots, and they're in the top, you know, four or five inches of soil. Um, there are some studies that go down into, you know, maybe another, maybe a foot or so down, and every now and again, you get a root that kind of finds its way down there. Um, the vast majority are in that, that top couple of inches. Yeah. I don't, I've never really looked super deep, so I don't, I don't have a number off the top of my head. I just know, like I said, probably 95% are in the top two or three inches. So do you plan to do a press release? To inform the population of Gary of this great honor? Yeah, yes, yes. Why yes. not? What the heck? Yes, right. No, uh, on my to-do list is to talk. We've got a PR person at my university. And I need to tell her about this. And that will all start to happen. So. That will be terrific. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So heads up, heads up for that. That thing is good. Some people will be like, oh, geez, there you go. You know, helping Gary out again. I'm like, wait, that's fantastic. That's great. I think that's the other you know, different topic, but the city of Gary, what it's got going for it is its nature, right? Right now, it's got a national park in its boundaries. A lot of the places that are being torn down, they're going back to green space, and uh, it's 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 actually impressive green space. I mean, I drive past a lot of a lot of open green areas these days, and I, it's no offense to Illinois, but when I drive through parts of Illinois, I see two or three plants in those little green green you know patches of grass and whatnot. And, and over by us, it's it's a it's pretty diverse, right? We have tons of plant diversity out there. So hopefully, you know, just let it go and be all right. And you got the South Shoreline. Oh, we got the yeah, South Shoreline. One of the few interurban trains. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to come visit. Um, right now, and, and I live in the Miller part, Miller Beach part of Gary. We're doing a big uh, renovation downtown on the streets and whatnot. Um, there's some good places to eat, good places to you know, have a beer. Uh, we've got a kombucha shop. So the kombucha. The beaches are <laughs> beaches are better than the ones in Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> All the foray we come there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, can we maybe have a foray with you in Indiana? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let me figure it out. Yeah. Any movement for Miller to become a separate city again? Um, there's, there's always some chatter about that. Um, I don't think it will ever happen because I think right now the vast majority of this sort of the people are doing okay in the city, living 
live in Millard, and so they have to reinvent everything. I mean, be more, it, it's more likely that Gary as a city would fold and you'd be left with all the different pieces that go to the different municipalities. I think that would be more likely. Rather than, you know, is that the same thing? Uh, it's not a succession. Well, we have the collections of Harper and those people go back more than 100 years and they went to Miller a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. some good, good stuff. Well, thanks everyone.